We turn together in the Word of God now to Matthew 15, and I'll read, picking up in verse 29 through chapter 16 and verse 12. We welcome again those visiting with us. We are continuing to go through the Gospel of Matthew together, and here we pick up on the Word of God today in chapter 15. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the Pharisees reached the other side, They had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. 
Beloved, as we read the Bible, what you have before you is the truthful and inerrant and infallible and inspired Word of God. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is perspicuous. It is clear in the matters that are before us. And what we see in this Gospel of Matthew over and over again is Christ in his compassion for those who are afflicted and struggling with sin. The big picture of Matthew is showing you that, that Jesus is moved with compassion. We don't have to wonder what God is like. He has told us in his word. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus, meaning anyone who has seen Christ has seen the Father, he says. If you want to know God, look to Christ. He is God in the flesh. And that's where we turn our eyes again today, to see Jesus' compassion for those who are deeply afflicted and suffering, and his warning to those who are proud and presumptuous. First, we see his compassion. The context matters so much here. Jesus has just cast out the demon from the Canaanite woman, a Gentile. He's in Gentile land. Some think that perhaps he was here for eight months. We're not sure. But he's now traveling to Decapolis, maybe about 40 miles from where he was previously. He's in this region where he previously healed the Gadarene demoniac. And people are bringing, in large numbers, the blind, the crippled, the mute, the lame, and many others. Mark chapter 7 gives us a very interesting insight here. If you turn there, it helps to see sometimes the details of the other Gospels. Mark 7 talks of a deaf man with a speech impediment. So this is a parallel to Matthew. You see these are the same, this is the same event from two different camera angles, two different Gospels. And this man is in a situation that seems absolutely hopeless. Jesus takes him aside. He thrusts his fingers into his ears. The man can't hear kids. This is sign language that he's about to heal him. Jesus spits and touches the man's tongue in beauty and compassion and touch and grace. Jesus expresses his compassion here. He looks up to his Father in heaven. The power comes from God, he is God, and he sighs. My grandpa used to sigh. A whole body being moved. Do you sigh? Maybe you sigh when you go and you receive really good news when you feared bad news. Maybe you sigh when the news is actually worse than you feared. Maybe you sigh when you see the ravages of sickness and sin and evil and terrorism and death. Jesus' sigh here communicates to the man who cannot hear the sigh, he's still deaf, that Jesus cares. He says, be opened. And in his sovereign power and grace, Jesus heals the man. The first words the man hears are Jesus, God in the flesh, speaking to him. Only God can do this. 
All things were created by Jesus. All things are upheld by him. It's a sign of what will happen ultimately at the end of the age. The new creation has come. One day all things will be made new. Jesus, in his compassion, heals not only this man, but many. The crowd says he's done all things well, Mark tells us. And then in Matthew 15, it says they glorified the God of Israel. That's an interesting phrase. Because these are Gentiles speaking of Israel's God. Who is Israel's God? It's Jesus. He's there in the flesh. The God of Israel reminds us God takes the name of his people. He draws near to them. When you're married, a man and woman are so close and united together, the woman changes her name and takes the man's name. So it is with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's come close to us in Christ. And Gentiles who knew nothing of the Old Testament now are praising Jesus, the God of Israel. A remarkable contrast to the religious leaders. Jesus calls the disciples to him. Three days have gone by, Matthew 15 says, and they're hungry. Kids, are you hungry after three hours? A lot of times we are. Now, these people had maybe a four to five mile walk or maybe even further to their homes. It could have been hours that it would take them to get home. They've been here for a long time. And Jesus, in his compassion again, cares about their physical condition. He says they might faint along the way. Maybe they're hangry and maybe their head is kind of a little bit dizzy and they're hungry. Jesus, again, is going to do this not to gain popularity, but to show compassion. The disciples over and over wanted to dismiss people. Remember that? Dismiss the 5,000, dismiss the Canaanite woman. Jesus says, we're not going to do that. He preempts what he expects them to say, that they'll want to dismiss this crowd as well. And as you teachers know, you say to your kids, there's no such thing as a bad question, right? Have you said that before? Well, as one commentator says, this might come close. Look at verse 33 of Matthew 15. The disciples say, where can we get enough bread in this remote place? We're out here. What are we going to do? What had just happened in one chapter before, loved ones? The feeding of the 5,000 men, 20,000 perhaps, men, women, and children. The critics say this proves the Bible's not true. This is a double. But loved ones, it's not. Jesus himself on another event feeds another crowd. A different size crowd. This time 4,000, then 5,000. A different amount of bread to start with. This time seven loaves, that time five. Another time of year. It was spring. Now it's dry in the summer. Another type of fish. R.C. Sproul says this type is a sardine in this area. Different amounts of food left over. Twelve baskets full before, representing probably the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus is that true Israel of God in the flesh. This time, seven. And the word for basket here is a hamper, a large basket. The same word used when Paul was, was dropped down outside of the city wall. In the book of Acts, 
enormous leftovers. Jesus miraculously feeds another crowd. This is God in the flesh. The food was probably better than any bread you've ever had. Better than Panera, better than Great Harvest, wherever you enjoy going, better than homemade bread. But the point is not the bread. Even as they all were fed and it says were satisfied, what do we learn about Jesus? Well, he is the greater Moses, feeding his people in the wilderness with himself. God expresses his love to his people often with food. We talked about that last week with the Lord's Supper. The fruit of Eden, the marriage supper of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem, the promised land with milk and honey. John 6, though, tells us what the food is about. Christ. He feeds you with himself, loved ones. In his compassion, his love, his mercy. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the bread of life for Jews and Gentiles who believe. For Canaanite women and crowds of people. Not just breadcrumbs, but a lavish meal. What the Canaanite woman prayed is happening. Coming to these Gentiles, Jesus himself, and he comes to you and me every Lord's Day by his Spirit. He feeds us with his word, with the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ broken for you, the cup in the new covenant, the blood of Christ poured out for you. He wants to build up your faith he comes in grace and mercy to his people. He knows your afflictions. Your afflictions stir his compassion, loved ones. Do you know that? You're sleepless at night. Your body is breaking down. As you get older, things don't work the same way. You cry out for a child and you struggle. You have a miscarriage and you grieve. Your marriage is difficult. You're crying out for help. You're worried about the spiritual state of your kids. You're thinking about our country. You're thinking about Israel. You're thinking about terrorism. You're thinking about how some things in this life won't get better and won't get fixed, perhaps. But he cares. He comes near. And those afflictions stir his compassion for you. Cry out to him. By nature, we want to turn inward. We tend to despair. Jesus says, bring them to me. Depend upon me. In humility, the church building situation, the unknowns of that, press on, pray, don't grow weary. Jesus is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Our sin stirs his compassion. In our darkness, we think, well, I've sinned. I shouldn't come to church. I can't come to church. I can't pray. I don't want to read my Bible. I turn inward. Jesus says, bring it to me. He is a great high priest who reigns above. He who knew no sin was made sin for you, that you might be the righteousness of God in him. And by his spirit, he helps you to enjoy his love. Kids, mom and dad hug you. You feel their embrace, right? They come near, and you come near to them. So by the spirit of God, we don't want to just hear and see but also feel and enjoy 
the love of God for us. We struggle. Our bodies struggle. Our souls struggle. But Christ wants you to know by the Spirit that he loves you. That more was gained in him than was lost in Adam. That whatever dark sin you've committed, our sinful nature itself, his death on the cross has made provision for it. There's a boundless, bottomless grace in Jesus. He says, trust me. Taste the waters of the beauty of the fountain of Christ that gives us then by faith through the Spirit a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. We need the Spirit of God. Do you struggle with hearing? My wife wonders if I have a hearing problem. I might. (laughs) The other day I thought she said, we need a piano tuner. But what she really said was, we need a can opener. If I had followed the first bit of advice that I thought I heard, we'd have a piano tuner at our house. It happened again this morning. It's still dark. Do you have your flashlight on your phone in the dark so you don't bump into something? But in the process, you might wake someone up, right? Which, what, do you, what would you prefer? Neither one might be good. She was awake. I thought she said to me with the flashlight, you look like a great Dane. That's a strange thing, I thought. Does the flashlight make me look like a great dame? Maybe. But what she really said was, that was a great game. Referring to a sporting event. Our ears need to be unstopped. I wasn't listening well. I wasn't hearing well. We need the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to trust in Jesus, to know him in his presence, to commune with him, and in response... God equips us to show generosity as Christ has shown us generosity. Leftovers, lavish to this group of Gentiles. God equips us to show compassion. There's a story in New York City, maybe you heard about this. A woman who was attacked and stabbed back in the 60s. Over the course of 30 minutes, 38 neighbors watched from their windows. None of them called the police. People wondered, what's going on with this? The study showed that in a group, responsibility seems to diffuse. People assume someone else will act. They don't see themselves as the neighbor to the person in need. And they seem to think if no one's acting, then it's not really a problem. There's a profound illustration here of our sinful hearts. Loved ones, we don't dismiss people here at Emmaus Road. We take your needs and your troubles seriously. We can't fix things, but we can cry out to God together. We can pray together. We can read scripture together. We can listen to one another with our ears opened. And we can remind each other of the compassion of Jesus and show that to each other of the household of faith and beyond. The compassion of Christ goes beyond our walls to those in the neighborhoods around us, to those we live next to, to to those that might not be like us outwardly, but who need Jesus just as much as we do, to people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, bringing the compassion of Christ to them. Secondly, who is Jesus? He also gives a warning. In this warning, we are reminded that Jesus 
and these Sadducees and Pharisees have a history. This didn't come from nowhere, did it? Do you see these cats come up on the scene again? Jesus now goes across the lake, probably now near Capernaum, and the Pharisees and Sadducees accost him. These guys don't have much in common. The Pharisees would be the theological conservatives of the day, the ones, remember, who added to the law of God, the commandments of man. The Sadducees would be the liberals of the day, the rationalists, the ones who sided with the Greek and the Roman Empire. They don't like each other, but they think that the enemy of their enemy is their friend. Do you see that? They're united in their hatred of Jesus more than they're divided in their hatred of each other. Jesus, show us some signs. They're there to test him. This is like Satan testing Jesus in the wilderness. And you think about the signs Jesus has already shown. The feeding of the crowds on two different occasions. The healings of the blind and the mute and the deaf. Jesus, show us something bigger than that. But do you think behind the scenes, Deuteronomy 13 is here? Are they wanting to prove that Jesus is a false prophet and put him to death? Probably. That's probably in the background. That's their goal in all of this. Signs themselves don't produce faith. You know that from talking to unbelievers, perhaps. Maybe from your own experience. It's the Spirit of God that brings us to believe in Christ, who is the sign of God himself. He tells them, you guys are spiritually minded, that's what you say, but you're better meteorologists than you are spiritual guides and shepherds for the people. You can look outside and look at the weather and you can tell what might be coming based on what the sky looks like, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And Mark tells us he sighs deeply. Another sigh, much like he had done before, The sigh before was for the man in his compassion who is blind and deaf. This sigh is over the evil of the Pharisees and Sadducees. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Is he talking about physical adultery? That may be a part of it. But I think more than this, it's spiritual adultery which in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, God says to his people over and over again, is idolatry. What's the link between idolatry and spiritual adultery? Unfaithfulness. He's angry with a righteous anger. He says, I will give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. We had seen that a few chapters earlier, Remember? What's the sign of Jonah? Well, he's the prophet sent by God, kids, do you remember, to go to Nineveh, a Gentile people. As he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will die on the cross, be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, and rise from the dead. The sign of Jonah is the greatest sign of all. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is how we read our Bibles. Christ at the center And as one author says, isn't that an interesting sign to give Sadducees and Pharisees? The Pharisees were devoted to killing Christ. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. And Jesus says, 
The sign I will give you is my power over death in the cross and the resurrection. He rebukes them. They get back into the boat, and now the camera angle focuses in on the disciples. Do you see what's kind of tying this together? Bread, needs, as well as hardness of heart. Again, the disciples are not seeing it because apart from the Spirit of God, we wouldn't either. They talk about earthly bread. Look at verse 5, chapter 16. They're on the other side of the lake and don't you wonder how this discussion went? Did Andrew say to Peter, you forgot it this time. Peter, you were the bread guy. I told you to bring the bread. You go on a family trip, there's always something you forget, isn't there? Camping trip, there's always, hopefully it's not all the food. But in this case, it was. No bread. And then one of the most important verses in this, in this section of narrative, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And these guys are thinking this is about physical bread. That's what's going on here. What does Jesus mean? Well, leaven, all of you who cook and enjoy the fruit of your labor, works silently inside. It gets mixed in, and the dough grows and permeates everything. In this case, Jesus means this in a very negative way, talking about evil. Like Paul, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a reminder of the proper biblical practice of church discipline just as an aside for us, that when a professing Christian is living in unrepentant sin and is prayed for and is lovingly warned and doesn't repent but hardens their heart, discipline is the loving thing to do for the restoration of the sinner, to deter others, that sin would not spread, that Christ's name would be honored, that it would prevent God's wrath as we see in Corinthians as some of them died. This is the loving thing to do. But what does Jesus mean in the context here? The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is probably both their teaching and their hypocrisy. Their teaching, spiritual poison, testing God like Satan did, refusing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, cynicism, hatred of Christ, spiritual pride, self-righteousness, adding to God's law and taking away from God's law. Remember that? They added commandments, the commandments of men. They took away the commandment to love their parents. Legalism and antinomianism, two sides of the same coin. There's no Christ there. Adding to or taking away from the Bible itself. False doctrine is like this. It has an enticing odor. And it spreads like leaven in a person's heart and head, in their family, in a church, in a school, in a community, in a nation. Jesus is warning us, watch out. They will try to trap you and trick you. Naturally, the human heart is drawn to saying, well, I'm going to work hard enough and I'm going to do enough good things to outweigh my bad things and I'll be saved. I'm going to deny justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I'm going to twist the words. I'm going to redefine them. And I'm going to say that I'm orthodox. Truth and error matters. 
We defend true doctrine because we love you and we love God and we love his word. False teachers will major on minors. They'll try to come up with a new idea. They'll sound really smooth. And they'll be teaching the works of the devil. The leaven is the leaven of their hypocrisy. We talked about this earlier. It's a hidden cancer. They want to appear spiritual. They want everyone to praise them. They're all about men and the opinions of others. They don't know the glory that belongs to God. This is where in our hearts we pray, God, keep me from this sin, this fear of man. They love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God because they did not perceive the nature and the glory that belongs to and is due to God. They were looking down on others all the time, down for the approval of others and down to condemn others. They're not looking to Christ. And there's dangers in our own age. The yeast of the Pharisees, beloved, is something we need to be on guard for in our own time and hearts. Expressive individualism. A Romans 1 world, calling evil good and good evil. Ever-changing forms of self-destructive behavior. Adding to or taking away from the Bible. Co-opting Jesus into a political vision of the future. The Pharisees and Sadducees both tried to do that, by the way. To make Jesus their means to their political ends. Cynicism. I think that's a danger in the hearts of all of us, but for Christians, that we pray, God, keep me from the pride and the faithlessness of cynicism. Cynicism is alluring because it's easier. It's easier to critique than to pray, God, help me to grow in love. Love trusts, love hopes, love perseveres. Romans 13 reminds us, do not grow weary and it's time to wake up from our slumber. The signs of the times, Boyce's quotes are there. We live in an evil age. The culture is hostile to God. But Christ has come and it's an age in which God has acted in Christ and accomplished your salvation. The time is short It's a day of God's grace. It's a day to repent and believe in Jesus, but it will not go on forever. Young people, the world around you is saying that you're cosmic dust, that you're nothing special, that there's no plan for your life, that you decide how to live, who to be, how to love. These are lies from the devil. The triune God made you in his image. Before he made you, he knew you. He breathed life into you. The Father loves you. He sent Jesus to pay for your sins, to rise from the dead. He gave you his Holy Spirit. His word is true. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Stand firm in Christ, Emmaus Road. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Respond in courage and confidence, in humility and persevering grace standing on the truthfulness of God's word, praying for wisdom, discernment. Beloved, these things matter for us. 
The Pharisees didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. They felt the sting of Jesus' imagined criticism. They felt in a peevish way that Jesus was criticizing them for not bringing bread. Isn't that interesting? But as the text ends in verse 12, they did understand, after Jesus said it again to beware of that leaven, that this is not about bread. It's about the false teachings of the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus says your faith is weak, but he did not condemn them. He did not say you're an evil and adulterous generation. Nor did he say what he said of the Canaanite woman, great is your faith. He lovingly chastened them. He brought them to repentance because the heart of unbelief was in them. And he, by the Spirit of God, brought them to trust in him. The same thing is true for us. Beloved, they came to understand why Jesus came. Why did he come? To save sinners. We are sinners that need to be saved. He came so that now through the eyes of faith, we see that this earthly bread points to Jesus, the heavenly bread. He alone saves you from your sins. He alone feeds you now and to eternity. He alone is your reward. He alone is your deepest satisfaction and joy. Jesus calls us to trust him. To see in the face of Christ crucified the true depth of our sin and the amazing mercy and love of our Savior. As we look not to ourselves but to Christ, our eyes are no longer, longer earthbound. The disciples were just looking down, down, down. We forgot bread. Jesus says, look up to me. Emmaus Road, look up to Christ. As you look around at the present evil age, don't dwell there. Don't just camp your tent there. Don't grow in the danger of cynicism and despair there. But remember, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, abide in Jesus. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. You have died, Emmaus Road. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your glory, appears, and he will come again, then you, brothers and sisters, will also appear with him in glory. Amen.